The readings today come from the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 1 and then towards the end of the book in chapter 26. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his father. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's house, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among them, by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishing and over all that belong to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishing, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. And then Numbers 26. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, take the census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Megan, for following that rather disjointed series of readings, but I, I'm hoping to make sense of all that as we move along and we'll find how it all uh, links up together. We should pray and seek the Lord's blessing, but let me say again, welcome to church. It's always uh, lovely to be here, to be amongst friends, and so it's uh, great to be back again. So we should pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. <clears throat> Every day, Lord, is a gift from you. This day is a special gift as we gather together and spend time, Lord, studying your word and father i pray that our eyes and ears and hearts might be open today that you might be glorified father and that we lord god might be blessed and encouraged by what your word has to say to us father and so i pray this lord in jesus name amen this is for me to use casper i presume <laughs> thank you that could be interesting all right well the book of Numbers. I think this is a 
part of the Bible that has an awful lot to say to us in the time in which we live, the times in which we live. It's it's an ancient book, but it's one that I think we should feel very connected with. Now, Numbers is part of the books of Moses. They're the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. The Hebrew title for this book is not Numbers. I think it's a very good title, by the way. The Hebrew title for this book is In the Wilderness because it covers the 40 wilderness years of Israel's wanderings between leaving Egypt and entering the Promised Land. I think I've got a... a, um, picture of their wanderings there somewhere it's coming no <laughs> it's way up there no maybe I haven't so <laughs> go back to the beginning game I knew I'd make a mess of this <laughs> okay we will survive God has promised all right so this dates at about uh, 1500 BC now Israel's wanderings over those years are not just simply physical wanderings wandering about the desert there's a sense in which Israel is spiritually wandering. They often find themselves in that 40 years in a spiritual wilderness, cut off from God because of their foolishness, their their sin and their rebellion. Now, the Old Testament is written in a very different age to ours, of course. Numbers are written in a very different age. We're post-resurrection, they're pre-Christ, pre-resurrection, And that requires quite careful interpretation because between us and numbers, for example, there are many gaps to cross, many bridges to go over. There's a time gap. This is written three and a half thousand years ago. The the world has changed since then, but the human heart has not changed. It is exactly the same. It's the human hearts that are being addressed here. there's There's a culture gap. Book of Numbers written about a nomadic Hebrew tribe wandering in the desert, very different to contemporary Australia. This is a patriarchal tribal society. And there's the language gap. Numbers is written in Hebrew. It must be translated into English so they understand it. There's also a, a theological gap. God's salvation plan, God's great salvation plan is still being unfolded through the book of Numbers. It's a work in progress. We today have the complete picture in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Nevertheless, there is a wonderful unity in the Bible and its message. There's a, uh, there's a connection between numbers and us. We let the Bible interpret itself. It will show us the connections as we move along. We must factor, though, in that between the Old Testament and us, there has been a game changer. The Son of God's come to earth We have the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus interprets everything before and everything after. So the kind of big idea for this is that this talk teaches that God was faithful to his promise to raise up a nation of his own, Israel, which was the the church nation, and give them a promised land. And it also, though, assures us that God will be faithful to his promise to the New Testament church, to build us up and carry us through to the ultimate promised land, new heavens and a new earth. So my first point is that numbers count. The events in the book of Numbers are sandwiched between two 
two bookends. You know what bookends are? The things on your shelf to stop the books falling off? There was a book sale yesterday at the um, Mumbai Library. And they had this book sale now and again and, uh, and they set out all these books very, very cheaply. <clears throat> but they had, no, they had no bookends and I was uh, messing around with one row of books and uh, the whole thing fell off into the garden so I had to go down and scrape around. <laughs> bookends are very handy things. And there are two wonderful bookends in the book of Numbers. Two censuses. I think that's the right word, censuses. Because sensei has something to do with karate, isn't it? So I think, I think it's censuses that were ordered by God, one at the beginning of the book and one at the end, as, as, as Megan read. Now, why does God order two censuses? Because he wants you and me and all those Israelites to see something. The first census, in chapter 1, takes place a couple of years after they have been, they've fled from Egypt. God has freed them. They are still at uh, Mount Sinai. That's a bit of um, rough country there. Uh, there's something like that, Mount Sinai is in an area like that, they're still at Mount Sinai and the census is limited to all the fighting men, the men of uh, 20 years old and older and the count does not include the Levites because they are not fighters, they are Israel's priests and teachers. The count totals 603,550 men. Bookend number one. Now scroll down about 40 years and Israel is at last about to enter the land of Canaan. And once again God orders the census of the same people, the fighting men. This is why you're over in chapter 26. The total, 601,730. It's about the same. There's just about 1,800 fewer. Now what are we meant to see? That, that Israel has gone back a bit? No, no, we are meant to stand in awe of God's faithfulness to his promise. We're meant to be amazed that Israel is still there at all. And not only is it still there, it's about the same size as when it left Egypt. <clears throat> now, over those 40 years of the wilderness wanderings, Israel has faced threat after threat, crisis after crisis, any of which could have wiped them out. God himself could have justifiably wiped them out. But they're still there. Why? Because God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a nation, promised that he would give them their own land and that they would be a blessing to all the world and they'd bring to the world glimpses of heaven. God promised that they would still be there. It's all down to God, you see. The second, sorry, the two bookends testify to God's faithfulness to his great salvation plan and to his power to carry it out. See, these numbers really count. They tell us, one, that God makes promises. Two, he has the power to keep them. And three, he is willing to persevere to fulfill his promises, to persevere even with broken people to complete his plans. And that should encourage us because I think most of us are broken people in one way or the other. God will fulfill his plans through broken people. We'll go to point two, the books between the bookends. You, know, you have bookends on either end of the shelf and in between are all your favourite books. Well, we'll look at the books between these two bookends. The books between the bookends are the threats that Israel faces during those 40 years in the wilderness. Having left Egypt... 
They go via Mount Sinai to receive instructions on how to live as God's people. And then they head north for the border of Canaan land, the land land that God had promised them. Now, immediately, immediately, some of the people, they're described in the book of Numbers as rabble or, or grumblers. There's a great Hebrew word, by the way, for these, these people. It's the word sapsup. It almost kind of explains the kind of people that when it saps up. Well, if you were Chinese, you'd know that laps up is very, very similar. So it means rubbish. So it's pretty close. Well, these people, the rabble, the grumblers begin whinging. Why? They don't like the food. Now, in my years in the Air Force, I, I ate in many an Air Force mess in various parts of Australia and overseas. And I can report that the food was always absolutely marvellous. But there were some blokes who would complain at absolutely everything. Well, here they are. This is their early contemporaries here. They, um, you know, God was feeding them stuff called manna, free on very morning. Um, manna, it had a strange name. It just means, what is it? Well, despite being called, what is it? It, was, it tasted like wafers and honey. That sounds pretty good to me. And it's free. And he's feeding them on, on, on manna. But it says, lay long for the good old days of Egypt, where they ate meat and fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. Well, see, their their freedom from slavery in Egypt, their adoption as God's family, their, their future as God's kingdom doesn't seem to mean a thing to them. Their slavery in Egypt, the genocide of their babies, doesn't mean a thing. Being worked to death doesn't mean a thing. They just want melons and garlic. Bless them. Well, God is is not surprisingly angry at their faithlessness, their ingratitude. He gives them meat, quail. They come in like by the millions. And and, and they, they eat on this quail till it pours out their nostrils. Sounds terrible. But... He also withdraws from them his very special protection. A very great plague strikes Israel. This is early days. A very great plague. Many die. Hello, Israel is shrinking. What's going to happen to God's promise? Then Israel has a a leadership crisis. You can read all about it, by the way, in the book of Numbers. A leadership crisis. Moses, um, uh, his uh, sister uh, Miriam and and his brother Aaron... Uh, they, they, they arc up against Moses. They want to depose him as leader and, and establish themselves as Israel's leaders. This is what they say. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? No, he hasn't spoken through them. Now, Miriam, who seems to be the ringleader, uh, is suddenly struck down with, with leprosy because they're rebelling against God's rule. And Moses, perhaps demonstrating qualities, the qualities for which God chose him, intercedes for her and asks God to forgive her. And he does. So God heals her and Moses' leadership is confirmed and yet another one of the many crises has passed. Then... Israel sends 12 spies. They get to the border of Canaan, the southern border, 
They send 12 spies into Canaan prior to their invasion. And they discover what? A wonderful place. A, a virtual paradise. It's in that, I think it was a picture at the very beginning of those guys carrying a great big bunch of grapes. Two, two blokes to carry a bunch of grapes. Now, I have a favourite grape. It's called Red Globe. It's the most beautiful grape. Uh, I, I can hardly find them anymore. They almost must go overseas because they're not in the markets. But Red Globes are great big red guys. Uh, I just love them. But, but, and they get big, big bunches. But this is a bunch so big it took two men to carry it. And so it's a fine place. And they come back to report on what they've seen, these 12 spies. But 10 of them bring back a bad report. Rather than seeing the opportunities, rather than trusting God and God's promises to give them the land, they tremble in fear. They say, oh, the people are giants. The cities have strong walls and the land swallows people, whatever that means. But they were terrified at the prospect of going up there. However, one of those spies, Caleb, a good man, is appalled at, at, at the lack of faith of the other spies. And he's backed by a chap called Joshua. And Caleb brings a glowing report. It's a great place. Now, of those 12 spies, only Caleb and Joshua live to enter the land. The people uh, of Israel believe that the 10 who bring the bad reports, and the bad reports always spread rapidly, as you well know, and people start saying, we are doomed. I wish we'd never left Egypt. And God is devastated. These people have seen his great works in freeing them from Egypt, the, the ten plagues, the, the parting of the seas, the food from heaven, the water from the rock, and now they don't trust him. And God says to Moses, step aside. I'm going to disinherit this mob. I'll get rid of them and start again just with you, Moses. So it looks like the end for Israel. They all die in the desert. But again, Moses intercedes. He begs God to persevere with these broken vessels, persevere with Israel for his own namesake. And he says to God, and I'll paraphrase, you don't want other nations saying you couldn't pull it off, do you, Lord? And God agrees. Well, it's all part of Moses' growth. God relents, but he decrees that all men of fighting age who are among the whingers, and that is most of them, will never enter the promised land. They will die during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. They'll, they'll be leaving a great big uh, trail of bodies uh, through the desert, uh, we are back at the beginning. Here we have, no, go back, Bob. <laughs> we have a desert. We've lost the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very high tech. Uh, yeah, there's a actual desert scene there. Is it? It's a no, it's not, it didn't, didn't make it right through to here. Never mind. Okay, well, there's going to be, around this desert, there's going to be a great trail of of Hebrew bodies, of people who died, those people who did not trust God. Now, I don't know how many of those 600,000 men in the first census didn't believe God, sided with, the, with the, uh, the, those who said, it's, it's, it's a dangerous place, we can't go in there. I don't know, but I expect most of them sided with the complainers and they died. Hundreds of thousands of 
Israelite soldiers, fighting, fighting age men. This is terrible. Israel is going backwards very, very fast. So God tells them, because you failed to believe me, you will spend the next 40 years wandering around. And now you must not try to enter the land of Canaan, because if you do, I will not go with you. But the Winders say, oh no, we've, we've made a mistake. Okay, we're ready to obey now. Put your swords on, which they did. They strapped on their swords and went up to fight against the land of Canaan. And they were doomed because of their disobedience. The, the Amalekites and the Canaanites poured out and just cut these people down. Many, many Israelites died because God was not with them. They were cut to ribbons. See, Israel is facing annihilation. Numbers are shrinking. Will there be anybody left to enter the land of Canaan? Then, a little later, the Levites rebel. And they're backed by 250 tribal chiefs. And they say to Moses and Aaron... Everyone in the congregation is holy, not just you. We too should be able to function as priests. So they all wanted to be priests, whereas God had chosen just the family of Aaron to be priests. The Levites were the helpers. And so there's another great rebellion, you see, against God's authority, Moses' authority, and the rebels are destroyed, along with 15,000 others who side with them. This is not church growth. This is not church expansion. This is church contraction. Israel is shrinking further and further. Is there anybody left? Then Israel loses some more through through snake bite, don't they? And they narrowly survive an occultish attack when the king of Moab employs a, a sorcerer for hire to curse them. They are badly hit when the king of Moab corrupts Israel through sexual immorality. 24,000 Israelite men die in the subsequent plague. They're shrinking further and further, and so it goes on. So in summary, Israel is assaulted from within, from without. They disobey God. They, they grieve God. God again and again removes his special protection from them. He exposes them to, the, to his discipline, to attack from foreign armies, to disease wild animals, all in the space of 40 years. Their track through the wilderness is littered with Israelite bodies. Surely no nation can survive such a harrowing time. At the end of those 40 years, Israel should be just a shadow of its former self, or perhaps even non-existent. But what do we find? When the second census is taken, just prior to their entering the land of Canaan, for for sure, they are about the same size as when they left Egypt. See, God has preserved them. God has kept his word. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There has been a massive baby boom out in the desert. There's still 600,000 fighting men at the end of the 40 years of suffering. God keeps his word. He disciplines Israel for its faithlessness and rebellion. He blesses it for its faithfulness and obedience. Israel must survive and enter the promised land to provide a glimpse of heaven to the earth and also to provide a point of entry for Messiah Jesus. God promised he will do it. 
But what's that to do with us? Well, it poses the question, does the New Testament repeat the principle of God being faithful to his word and preserving his people through good times and bad? Well, point three, numbers count. But what are our numbers? Is there a point three somewhere there, Sarah? <laughs> no, somehow it's fallen off, sorry. Okay, point three. Just imagine this up there saying point three, numbers count, but what are our numbers? So just as there were two bookends or two censuses to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, there are two bookends in our era. Metaphorically, we also are in the wilderness. Just as Israel was not home until it entered the promised land, we are not home until we enter the true promised land, new heavens and a new earth. Now, our church's wilderness wanderings, you know, and this is our, our era, the church of our age, our wanderings began back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's where the Holy Spirit is poured out and the word of God starts to go around the world. But before that, in Acts chapter 1 verse 15 we read, the company of Jesus' followers, that is the church, numbered about 120. That is census number one. Peter preaches to the gathering crowd at Pentecost and immediately 3,000 are converted to Christ and they begin to take the gospel back to their homes and their countries all over the Mediterranean. And the word begins to spread and it's still spreading. Then there's a second census, a census right at the very end of the age. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, the Apostle John describes it like this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Our era starts with 120 and will in the end have so many that they can't be counted. How good is that? See, God has promised. In Matthew 16 verse 18 he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell or the gates of death shall not prevail against it. The true church will survive and it's going to grow and keep on growing. Now, point four then what are the books between our two bookends? 120, more than can be counted. What's happening in between? And by books I mean, like in numbers, what are the events that threaten the church and its survival in our era? What are they? Let's start with COVID-19. I think this pandemic has been the greatest disruptor of church life ever. Perhaps uh, rivaled only by the disruption of the First World War. The First World War has had <clears throat> unimaginable consequences for our country and for the church. Churches were emptied of their leadership, their pastors, their elders. Seminaries were emptied of their students as they went overseas to fight or become chaplain, chaplains and so many of them, of course, never came back. And that was followed by this massive outbreak of flu, a terrible, terrible time for the church. But when it comes to COVID-19, the church has never experienced such worldwide upheaval as this. Not only have good believers died, but, but we've been shut down and, and this has disrupted church life everywhere. And even for, after the, uh, as we emerged from the shutdown last year, uh, churches were in disarray. I, I spoke to and I heard from many, many pastors and they say, 
people just haven't come back. Others have moved on. They found new churches. They've gone. Some have gone to the great church called Soccer, and and people, pastors were devastated because everything was changed. So there's that, and we're still coping with that. <clears throat> there's, there's persecution, of course. Christians are still being persecuted all over the world. We have our friends up in Myanmar going through terrible times. They're being jailed. They're being murdered by, by church haters like radical Islamists and totalitarian regimes. And it, it's persecution even in the Western world. It's more in a form of marginalisation. They spin us off to the margins to, to sort of dismiss us as being irrelevant and ridicule us. And in some cases, they even portray the church as a very dark evil. There's a book come out recently called, I think it's called um, Christian Book, we have become the enemy. And we have in some people's minds, but of course we're not. We might even be economically squeezed. Revelation 13, 17 describes how those who are, who are Christ, that is those who are marked as Christ, not a literal mark, but belonging to Christ, will not be able to buy and sell unless they receive the mark of Satan. So if you speak out against godlessness and evil in our times, um, some in the woke movement may make sure that you won't earn money. You just ask Israel for out. Then there's, of course, still the continuing bother of liberalism, watering down God's word so that God's word looks like the world. They continue to erode the place of the church in the world and they steer the church towards extinction because once the church looks like the world, why have a church at all? So people keep changing God's word, altering it to trying to fit into the world, to become populist. We must not. We must stand on God's word. But still, perhaps the greatest threats to growth of the church come from within. Professing Christians who put pleasure and possessions and personal popularity and personal gratification before God. Churches are being devastated by immorality. Christians who seem to think that sexual satisfaction comes from somewhere outside of marriage, and it does not. Spiritual laziness, neglecting prayer, neglecting the personal reading of scripture, neglecting worship inside our our homes with our families. The, The failure of church leaders in this past 12 months, some very prominent church leaders have fallen so oh so terribly through immorality, through corruption, through bullying. It hurts us. The failure of churches to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, what really counts is faith in Jesus expressing itself as love for others. That is the main thing. We must keep at that and not be distracted by other things. So we have an imposing array of enemies against us. But here's the good news. God has promised to grow 120 into a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, language and nation. God loves his church. He will see it through through to completion. He uses broken vessels to get there. We do our part, of course, by remaining steadfast and faithful to Christ and teaching those around us to do the same. We will survive and we shall grow because God has promised. He has got our back. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the lessons of assurance.
from numbers, from the Gospels. We confess, Lord, at times we even ourselves doubt these things, Lord God. Forgive us, we pray. We repent of the fact that we doubt that you will do what you've said you will do. Father, we believe your word to be true. We stand by it, Father. We will build our lives, we'll place our lives upon what you've said, Lord, what you have promised, that you shall build your church and the gates of death will not overcome it. Amen.